In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So Team Grace, we're back in ordinary time, and we know ordinary time is all about what? Exactly. So we have these kind of buzzwords that help us to understand the different liturgical seasons. So if we were to go back to Advent, we would say Advent is all about what? All about preparation. What about the Christmas season? Joy, exactly. The Lord just wants to give us that joy. But ordinary time, again, is about what? Exactly. So Mother Church takes us back into the classroom. She wants to reteach us, guide us, correct us, encourage us in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So in today's gospel, we see in the other scripture readings from today, the high focus on the call, to be called by God. We see the call given to some of the first apostles. And of course, we are reminded that each of us have received a similar call. Even those who were, of us who were baptized as babies, at some point in our life, we, held, we heard the call, we felt the call from God saying, come follow me. We were to fan and flame the graces given to us in the sacraments in order to give that personal decision for Jesus Christ, to say, yes, Lord, I will follow you, to hear the call and say yes, and then continue to follow him. Mother Church reminding us of that. St. John calls that our first love. In fact, St. John says when we get in difficult times in our relationship with the Lord, when we're struggling with temptation or fear or anxiety, St. John says, go back to your first love. Go back to that first time you said yes to the Lord, the first time you opened up the floodgates of that grace. Go back to the first love. That can be an opportunity for renewal in order to be restored, to go deeper in our relationship with the Lord. So Mother Church is highlighting that call, that summons today during ordinary time. And in addition to being in ordinary time, we know here in the United States, we are still in the midst of a national Eucharistic revival. So the bishops of our country have called us to deepen our Eucharistic faith and Eucharistic devotion. The bishops have done this because according to recent Pew research, 70% of our own do not believe in the Lord's true presence. So the bishops chose to address that. Now, some encouraging news is that as the revival has gone on, in the areas where it has been implemented, where it's actually been observed, and regrettably that's not everywhere, but in the areas where it's been observed, the numbers have increased of those who believe in the Lord's true presence in the Eucharist. So, where the revival was actually done, we see that it bore strong spiritual fruit. Here at Our Lady of Grace, in observance of the National Eucharistic Revival, we've been walking through a homily series during ordinary time. We talk, we've walked through the parts of the Mass, and then we've walked through the Catechism of the Catholic Church on the Eucharist. Now, right now we're in ordinary time, but this is actually a short stretch of ordinary time. We know that ordinary time is gonna end on February 14th when Lent begins. So sorry, lovebirds. <laughs> Ash Wednesday's <laughs> Valentine's Day, okay, right? You can sit and look at the eyes of your beloved and say, you know what I really love about you? Those nasty ashes smeared all over your forehead. <laughs> but it's early Lent this year, so we don't have a lot of ordinary time left. So we wanna make sure we use as much as possible. This is important because our bishop is called a National Eucharistic Congress, excuse me, Diocesan Eucharistic Congress uh, here in the Diocese of Charleston. So on April 6th, Saturday, April 6th, he's called all the people to come together, all of us to be with him in Columbia for this Eucharistic Congress. And he has said that's gonna be the conclusion of the revival for the Diocese of Charleston. So there's a national Eucharistic revival in Indiana, but the bishop has said, don't use your resources for that, use them for the diocese, because he really wants the Diocesan Eucharistic Congress to really be successful. So right now we're looking to Lent, February 14th, 
and then we go through Lent, and then we enter the Easter season, and April 6th, we're gonna have that Diocesan Eucharistic Congress. So that just kind of helps us put everything in perspective. For today, however, let's go back to our homily series on the parts of the Mass and the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Today we're gonna to talk about the parts of the Mass. Next Sunday, I invite you to please bring your Catechism of the Catholic Church with you. We're gonna look at some of the parts of the Catechism on the Eucharist. But for now, let's talk about the Mass. Let's do some review, kind of get our minds focused, right? When we talk about the Catholic Mass, are we speaking more of the upper room or of Calvary? Calvary. Exactly, because we know the Mass is the representation, the making present of the one historical sacrifice of the Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago. And that sacrifice 2,000 years ago was offered, and who is the one who brings that sacrifice here to the 21st century and manifests that sacrifice here at our altar? Who's the one who does that? The Holy Spirit, bravo. Last night, the four, they were like, Jesus, come on, people, right? <laughs> we even have a hint here. Look, look at our raritos. We have the Holy Spirit, right? He's the one who's doing the heavy lifting. So exactly, the Holy Spirit is one who brings that one historical sacrifice right here to our own parish altar during the celebration of the Mass. To whom is the Mass offered? God the Father, exactly. I heard someone say God, bravo. <laughs> right? you know? So it's God the Father, exactly, right? And that helps us just in terms of as we're participating to realize that we are in Christ, with Christ, and through Christ, we are offering this sacrifice to the Father. So again, it helps us in our spiritual focus and how we are orientating, orientating our prayers you know, to keep our focus on God the Father, realizing what we're doing here. So if you look at that, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, there's the action of the entire Trinity. So in every Eucharistic sacrifice, we see the action of, the, of each person of the Holy Trinity. All right, so with that understanding, let's go to the Mass itself. I know it's been a little while, but let's see if we can do this. How many main parts are there of the Mass? Bravo. What's the first part? Exactly, the introductory rites. And, and that's, when we've gone over this about two years ago as a parish family, we walked through these. And that's where we're just getting ready for worship. So we're beginning, we do the penitential rite, we're getting ready, then we of course have the Gloria on Sunday and Holy Days where we're praising God. And that opening collect, never forget that when I say let us pray, and then there's a pause. That pause isn't because I'm looking for my place in the book, okay, maybe sometimes, but okay. <laughs> but that pause is so that you, the baptized, in your heart can list, can tell God what your intention is for the Mass. So some of you might know my mom is having surgery this coming week. Let us pray. Pause. Please, Lord, guide my mom and keep her safe. Right? And then we begin the formal prayer of the church. Right? What was your intention? You're a baptized Christian who is about to participate in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus to the Father. What was your intention? Do you realize the power and authority that has been given to you in order to offer this sacrifice for someone? Don't waste that. Pay attention, actively and consciously participate. So we have the introductory rites, very important. What's the second part of the Mass? Liturgy of the Word, exactly. We talked a lot about that. During the Liturgy of the Word, does Mother Church want us to use our missiles? No, exactly, because God's speaking to us, right? Have you ever tried to talk to someone and they have their nose in a book? Or how about this one? You try to talk to someone and they're on their cell phone? That's more common, isn't it, right? Some young people are like, what's a book? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay. So, but it's annoying, isn't it? Because you're trying to talk to someone and they've got their nose somewhere else, right? Well, the same is true. God is speaking to us during the liturgy of the word. Then the church has put the missiles down. Listen. 
Sometimes people say, well, I have to follow along. I have to know what the readings are. Aha. Uh Aha. -huh. Uh -huh. That means someone hasn't prepared for Mass, have they, right? Because we know we should come to Mass early or carve out time during the week in order to prepare. This is the most important thing we do all week. It's worth the prep time, right? So we should look at the readings beforehand so that we have relative knowledge of them. So when they're proclaimed, we can say, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember that, right? So liturgy of the word. What's the third part of the Mass? Liturgy of the Eucharist, exactly. And then what's the fourth part of the Mass? The concluding rites, which is basically the priest gives his blessing and says, get out of here, right? Go and give what you have received. Last night I had to make the announcement because we get all these guests here at Our Lady Grace. And their spiritual fathers haven't been teaching them. So they come and they leave right after communion. They skip the fourth part of the Mass. How many parts of the Mass are there? Are we expected to be at all four? Yes. Exactly. I would never come to your home, eat a meal with you, and then after the main entree say, okay, I'm heading out. Like, oh, well, Father, we have dessert. Whatever, I'm gone. <laughs> There's a lot of traffic out there. I got to get out of here, right? You know? That would be horribly rude, huh? And if it's rude in terms of human interaction, it's almost blasphemy to do it consciously to the holy sacrifice. I've received Holy Communion, I'm just going to run out. I'm going to try to get in the, the parking lot sooner and get out of here before everybody else. Well, now you've just offended the Holy Sacrifice and you're exercising the, the, the vice of pride. Huh? That's selfish. The Christian would say, I'll stay here longer so that other people can get out of the parking lot first. Right? That's our way. So how many main parts of the Mass are there? Four. Are we expected to be at all four? Yes. And we know they hear at Our Lady of Grace. Right? We talked about that. We know that. All right, let's go to the third part of the Mass. That's where we are in our series and we're actually at the Eucharistic prayer, and we know there are multiple Eucharistic prayers after Vatican II, which is great. They have their place. I shared with you before, I like having the option of the second Eucharistic prayer or the third Eucharistic prayer, especially when I offer Mass at the prison or in previous times when I've offered Masses at care facilities. It's good to have those options. But Mother Church, whenever she lists her options, she always lists them in, her, in order of her preference. So when she lists something, the one she lists first is the one that she wants done. And the reason why it shouldn't be done is there's some pastoral circumstance. So here at Our Lady of Grace, we do the first Eucharistic prayer. It's also called the Roman Canon because that's what the, the Eucharistic prayer Mother Church prefers. It's the oldest, it's the most ancient, it's the most beautiful. So Mother Church prefers the first, first Eucharistic prayer. Now, what's interesting is because we have the same Eucharistic prayer that we overwhelmingly pray here at Our Lady of Grace, we're able to walk through it. Imagine if I did the second Eucharistic prayer this weekend and the third Eucharistic prayer next weekend, the first Eucharistic prayer the week after that, and then after that, the fourth Eucharistic prayer, and then I decide to do one Eucharistic prayer on reconciliation. I could never walk you through the Eucharistic prayer because it'd be constantly changing. So here we're just going to follow the preference. The church says, use the first Eucharistic prayer especially in a stable Eucharistic community, especially for the Sunday Mass of the people of God. Like, don't cheat them out of the beauty of the Roman rite. So we'll walk through the first Eucharistic prayer, and we're able to do that because that's the one we predominantly pray. So with that understanding, if you want to open up your cradle missiles, you can turn to page 17. And I remind you that the Eucharistic prayers are all there in your cradle missiles, right in front of you in, in your pews. So then on page 17, we're just going to walk point by point through the Eucharistic prayer, the first Eucharistic prayer. Let me ask you though, if Mother Church says, don't look at the missiles during the Liturgy of the Word, does Mother Church want us to use the missiles for the Eucharistic prayer? Yes. Exactly, because we're participating in the prayer. 
We as baptized Christians are offering the prayer with the priest in Christ to the Father. So we're offering the Eucharistic prayer. So that's why we should actively and consciously be engaged. So Mother Church says, yes, open up your missal and follow along. Make sure that you're praying the Eucharistic prayer as it's being vocalized by the priest. All right, so if you look there on page 17, last time, right before Advent, we stopped and we were calling to mind the Pope and the Bishop, and then we have that first pause. That's when we pray for all the living, the ones who are dear to us. And then right after that, we're gonna pick up where it says, in communion with those. So if you find that part that says, in communion with those. Now, these are called the mementos, uh, and these are, there are two of them. There's one before the consecration, and then you'll notice there's a second one after the consecration. And they're very important because this is where we recall people who are dear to us, and then we recall to mind a lot of saints. So the first one we recall the living, and we're about to walk through, and then we have all these saints we want to remember. After the Eucharistic prayer, we have the second one, and then we have the pause, and that's where you recall all of your beloved dead. And then we have another list of saints that we call to mind. So, okay, let's go through this first part. So, in communion with those whose memory we venerate. So, first of all, that in communion, those of you who know your catechism know that when we speak of the saints in heaven, those of us on earth, and those in purgatory, we are referring to the communion of saints. So, here, we're praying in the same language as we, as we use in the catechism. So, in communion, in union with, those whose memory we venerate. Now here, Our Lady Grace, that's easy, isn't it? Because look at all these saint, saint statues and the stained glass and so on. Like We love our saints, don't we? Right? We have these older brothers and sisters who are always with us. But look at what it says. In communion with those whose memory we worship. Is that what it says? That we give adoration? No, because we worship and give adoration to who alone? God, exactly. God alone is worthy of adoration. God alone is worshipped. So even in our, in our prayer, the church is teaching us that the ones we're about to call to mind are the ones that we venerate. So in theology, we speak about the highest of praise, which is latria. That's adoration, worship. That's given to God alone. Then dulia, that's what's given to all the saints. That's veneration, respect. But Our Lady always gets hyperdulia. So that's the greatest respect, hyperdulia. Okay. But look at this. It can be with those whose memory we venerate, especially the glorious ever-Virgin Mary. So who is always first? Exactly. If anyone ever lists the saints and they don't have Our Lady first, be very cautious of that list because Our Lady is the queen of all the saints. In fact, if you list all the saints and Our Lady's not there, the saints are like, we don't want to be on this list, huh? Because Our Lady's the Queen. She always goes first. Notice this, especially the glorious, so there's a reference to her assumption, ever virgin. Some years ago, someone who began to actually pay attention and take their faith seriously, they were really caught off by that, caught off guard by that. They were like, what? Ever virgin? What? What? Yeah, ever virgin. It's like, well, that makes it sound like she didn't have any other kids because she didn't. Well, no, like, I, I thought she had other kids. Well, that's why you're wrong. <laughs> you know? Our Lady was ever a virgin. Right? So ever Virgin Mary. So this shows the principle, lex orandi, lex credendi. What we pray is what we believe. So prayer is the order of our life. So we believe it, we see it reflected in the public prayers of the church. 
So especially the glorious ever Virgin Mary, mother of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Now whenever we see Our Lady, when we see Mary's name or Jesus Christ, what act of veneration do we give? Head bow, exactly. Only Our Lady and Lord Jesus receive those. And the saint on his or her feast day. Good luck trying to remember that, right? <laughs> but every time you see Our Lady or Our Lord's name, you give a slight head bow. Okay. And blessed Joseph, her spouse. Now our older Catholics will remember when, that, when St. Joseph was added to the Roman canon. Because that was, he was added by good Pope John, uh, John the 23rd. This is the same Pope who opened the Second Vatican Council. Good Pope John had a great love for Joseph. He said, we have to include Joseph. Joseph is the patron of the universal church. So he included Joseph. Now what was great about that is look at this. And blessed Joseph, her spouse. So we have Joseph identified according to his vocation. And we have Our Lady and Joseph mentioned right there. So a married couple are mentioned before the apostles. Isn't that great? Those of you who are called to the sacrament of holy matrimony, there's Mother Church honoring your vocation once again, that Our Lady and Joseph are, are, are recognized before the apostles. So okay, great. So we have Mary and Joseph, and then your blessed apostles and martyrs. So the first list are gonna be the apostles. The second list will be some of the martyrs of the Church of Rome. For this morning, we're just gonna go over the apostles. So we begin with Peter and Paul. Now, what immediately stands out to you about that? Peter and Paul. Hmm. Was Paul one of the original 12? No, no. No, we see definitely some Roman preference here, right? Because Peter and Paul are the patron saints of the Church of Rome. So we have Romulus Remus in Roman myth. The Romans believed that the new, the fulfilled Romulus and Remus were Peter and Paul. So they love Peter and Paul. Go to Rome, everything's Peter and Paul, right? So they put Peter and Paul. Now, in order to include Paul, that means they had to bump St. Matthias, who was the successor of Judas Iscariot. So they removed Matthias. He's in the second list of saints at the end of the Roman canon because they wanted to put Paul there. So that's kind of interesting. We had the Roman canon, and sometimes it's definitely Roman, isn't it, right? So Peter and Paul, not Matthias. And then we have Andrew. Who was who Andrew related to among the other apostles? Peter, exactly. We saw that in our gospel today. So Peter was the older brother. Andrew was the younger brother. We know Andrew served as kind of the secretary of the Lord. Whenever, wanted, everyone, whenever someone wanted to see Jesus, then they just had to go to Andrew. He basically arranged, we could say, our Lord's day book, right? And then we have James and John. Now these were brothers, sons of Zebedee, and we believe that these were two of the four apostles who were related to Jesus. Did you know the four of the apostles were kinsmen of the Lord? They were related, possibly cousins, so of some degree, right? Okay, so James and John. Now, James and John and Peter, we call those the key three. So, for example, the transfiguration, all the apostles are there, but the Lord takes Peter, James, and John with him. At Gethsemane, all the apostles are there, the Lord takes Peter, James, and John. So we call them the key three. They were the inner circle of the apostles. So James and John. Then we have Thomas. And Thomas is always called the what? Poor guy. You know, he doubts one time. (laughs) So, of course, we all regard him as the doubter. But once his doubt was resolved, Thomas goes on to be a great evangelist of our faith. He travels all throughout the known world. He goes as far as India to proclaim the gospel. His body still rests in India. He got all the way there in order to announce the gospel when he died a martyr. 
So you can imagine Thomas is up in heaven saying, you know, I preached the gospel, I got all the way to India, my body's still resting there, I died for the faith, and still they call me the doubter. He's like, come on, <laughs> you know. But actually the fact that he doubted can actually encourage us in our faith. That if one of the apostles had to mature and have that grace of conversion, then certainly when we have our doubts, we know that the Lord will work with us. Then we have James and Philip. It moves on to Bartholomew. Bartholomew's, Bartholomew is also known by the name Nathaniel. So if you read John's gospel, you'll see Nathaniel's there. He was the one that when he heard that the Messiah came from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? So Nathaniel is Bartholomew. Whenever you see two names, when an apostle has two names, when you look at the Roman canon, you can see what Rome prefers. What name does Rome prefer? So Bartholomew. And usually when Rome prefers it, the whole church prefers it. So we can say Bartholomew and Nathaniel, but we know the church prefers Bartholomew. And then we have Levi, Matthew. Matthew is also known as Levi. What was his occupation? Tax collector. The most notorious and wicked of people. Total thief. Huh? And we know the Lord actually went to the tax post, to his place of sin, in order to call Matthew to freedom. So Matthew is also called Levi, but the Church of Rome prefers what name? Matthew. So this is why you see the church also prefers Matthew. But for us to be aware, he's also called Levi. Then we have Simon and Jude. Now Jude is also one of the ones, one of the apostles who is related to the Lord. And you imagine if four of the apostles were related to Jesus in some form, that means they probably looked like him. And that can help us understand that when the Lord was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the guards wanted to come get him, they had to ask Judas to kiss Jesus. And one of the reasons why they had to ask him to give him the fraternal kiss was because four other men in the garden would have looked just like Jesus, right? So they wouldn't have known which one he was because the Lord had at least four cousins with him among the apostles. But we know Jude was related to the Lord. He wrote one of, the gospel, one of the letters in the New Testament. We know he himself became a great evangelist of our faith. And in our devotional life, he is regarded as the apostle for difficult cases. And for those of you who might not be aware, this is the reason why St. Jude is in our narthex. So we have his statue there. So anyone who walks into our church building, even if it's just a delivery guy who's dropping something off, or someone who's stopping in to get street directions, or whatever it might be, whoever walks through the doors of our church, Jude is there. And Jude is the one who's constantly looking for impossible cases, difficult situations. He always wants to bring them back. So that's why Jude's there. There's a beautiful Catholic custom when you walk into the church, when you leave, you go over and you touch the foot of Jude. So you go over, you touch the feet, you can say the name in your heart of someone that you're praying for. So maybe someone you know is away from the faith, a loved one or someone under your care, or maybe you just want to pray in general. You go up and you touch the foot, all those who have been hurt by the church, that they might come home. Right? So you can remember groups of people. But it's a beautiful practice to touch the feet of the saints. You can do it all the saints. Whenever you ask their intercession, it's customary you touch their feet. It's just a sign of deference and respect. If you go to St. Peter's Basilica, you see the bronze statue of St. Peter. His foot has been worn down. It's almost not even there anymore. Because all through the generations, the faithful have come and caressed the foot of the apostle, asking for his intercession for his prayers. So the custom is observed in Rome. It can be certainly observed here. So now you know the story of Jude. And I would encourage you, as you leave or as you come, go and touch the foot of the apostle and ask for his intercession. Now, what's interesting about the apostles is we have all their Latinized names. 
which means sometimes we don't see the connection to the Old Testament. This is something we lose. So, for example, let's just start with the name of our Lord. What is the name of the Lord? Jesus. But that's actually a Latinized form of his name. The Lord's Hebrew name, his Jewish name, was Joshua. The Lord's name was Joshua. It was Latinized to Jesus. And the same with the apostles. Let's just go with Jude. Do you know what Jude's Hebrew name is? Judah. Judah. Now, you know, I'm favorable to that name. It's a beautiful name. He's the fourth son of Israel, the one who received the promise. Some of you who are nosy, mm -hmm, you might know that's the name of one of my dogs, right? right? I love that name, Judah. It's powerful. Judah was the fourth son of Israel again. He received the blessing. He was responsible for the care of God's people. Apply that to the New Testament. We have the apostle Judah, Jude, who now has, again, the care of God's people. We go to him and say, Jude, this one's left, this one's been hurt, this one is in a situation, please bring them back. Right? So again, we see the connection there in terms of their Jewish names. So friends, these are the 12 apostles. This is an important part of the Roman canon. The apostles are the foundation of the church. It's through the apostles that we know who Jesus Christ is. We only know the life of the teachings of Jesus Christ because of the apostles. We call that in theology the apostolic mediation. We rely on the, the testimony of the 12 apostles. As Catholic Christians, you should know who the apostles are. In fact, if you come early to Mass and you're getting ready, you can open up the Credo Missal and you can start to study in order to know the names of the 12 apostles. You can perhaps, as we approach Lent, choose some spiritual reading on one of the 12 apostles in order to allow them to become greater intercessors and spiritual friends to you. So the apostles are definitely important this is why we see them highlighted in the Roman canon. So that's our review today. As a reminder, next week we're going to go back to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I encourage you to bring your catechisms with you to Mass.